This is Medicine on the Frontier, a unique expeditions podcast hosted by Luke Whittle-Gillard and Matt Hans. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Medicine on the Frontier. On today's episode, we're starting with a great news story that Matt, you're just going to love. I haven't actually told him about it yet. But Mark Agnew is a British man from Edinburgh, and he's just set two new world records by kayaking the Arctic Northwest Passage. Now, he began this 2,000-mile journey from Greenland in July and completed it three months later. He was one of a team of four. He's 32. He endured harsh weather, including 15-foot waves and an encounter with a polar bear, which I think all of us would be a pretty, you know, a bit sketchy about. Uh, he said he's been unable to feel his feet since July due to the freezing Arctic temperatures. I'm sure, uh, Matt, you could tell us all about that. Uh, but he's, you know, he's raised a lot of money now and he's hoping to raise even more. His goal is £25,000 and he's raised £7,000. But it's just absolutely insane, Matt. You've talked about your love of paddling. But, you know, this sounds like a whole new level. It really is. I mean, I love paddling. My paddling was definitely reserved to waterfalls and, uh, and technical rapids. But I'm also a keen sailor. Um, so I have a huge passion for the ocean. And I think that is a hell of an undertaking. I mean, it's you are completely on your own. You are out there at the pure mercy of the elements with nothing but your paddles to help you. I mean, it is, um, yeah, I'm pretty impressed actually. That's a, that's a hell of an undertaking. And add into the mix the polar bears and stuff as you're coming across the top. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a hell of an adventure. And, you know, it strikes me that the, like this isn't just like normal ocean kayaking. Like this part of the world, you know, you've sailed around it. This is really dangerous stuff. This isn't easy stuff to deal with at all. No, no, it's not. It's uh, it's an extremely difficult environment. You got you know, not to mention issues with the ice alone. You know, moving ice blocks that are around you, actually navigating areas. You have a huge amount of whales. Um, they they will have seen a yeah. huge amount of wildlife. This, this can all crush you, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the ice doesn't move that slowly, actually. I think people assume the ice moves really slow. Um, but once it's in the current and it's windblown, you know, they're, they're huge issues. Jeez. Well, you know, it, I, I like paddling. I don't think I like it that much. But, you know, they've set these amazing records and you know, I'm sure they're going to move on to, to even better things. But joining us today, we have someone who knows all about what it's like to deal with this sort of mental resilience in these kind of environments as well. You know, the high north. His name is Dr. Timogen Tan. He's known as the Survival Doctor on Instagram. He's a Canadian Army veteran who then trained as a doctor with a special interest in survival medicine. And then in 2021, he sort of puts all of that on hold for a little bit and goes on to the ninth season of the History Channel, a Netflix show, Alone, which, for those of you that don't know, is an absolutely insane show where you are literally put against yourself and the elements to survive and he placed third in that which is an amazing achievement 63 days in the canadian wilderness uh, and now he's working on a really new exciting project so timogen welcome to the show thank you for having us guys <laughs> uh, it's a, it's an absolute pleasure and to start it off with like that bio when i was writing it i was like god i don't know the classic line with us on the show is we got to get people back for a part two i think we might need a part three with you to really get around everything happy we... to do it <laughs> good uh but if we go back to the beginning 
like tell us what first drew you to the outdoors how did you know where you are now how did that first start yeah so i think as a kid when i was a kid probably adhd wasn't really a diagnosable thing back then but every little shiny thing um interested me and uh, one of the shiniest things was just the luster the animals the different plants and mushrooms of the forest and my uh stepfather uh, or my godfather rather showed me a lot of the the woods near his place and he got me into exploration into the wilderness and uh, as a young adult I started to do a lot of solo travels overseas and uh, that just made it even more of an excitement and adventure for me and that started everything you know it's crazy just to think like the Canadian wilderness I think is probably one of the the harshest environments in the world so you know it's a good place to start but then you go as you say, to the other other parts of the world, you see these different environments. You know, was that quite a big jump doing that sort of, you know, from one environment to all these other different ones? It's almost like being reintroduced to a new, completely uh, different world, uh, both as an environment, but also um, at least more significantly to, to me, to different people's way of life mm. and even the perception or the conception of what it is to be happy or what takes, um, what would you need to accomplish in life to be happy? What do you need in life to be happy? And I was very much drawn towards um, indigenous cultures and in, in indigenous practices. Uh, started in South America, then um, did a lot of time in East Africa and uh, working with nomadic groups like the Maasai and the Samburu. Um, just having a very simple, like simple life with many different pleasures of just enjoying like time. I think it was the, the first time in my life where I just experienced a very pleasant passing of existence. And that's the, they work with, with the land. I've worked with some of the Bantu tribes, the Maasai Mara um, mm. you know, are amazing. I was just working with the Chewa tribes uh, in Southern Africa. You know, they, they are absolutely dedicated to doing, you know, sus sustainment of, of their land. And, you know, what I'm doing now for the next year is I'm working on projects you know looking at afforestation and looking at you know carbon you know cleanup and giving them the ability to really take care of future generations and they're fully in it which is great to see because you look at some of the communities in the west and it's like you want to pay you know 10 cents or 10 pennies for a plastic bag and they're like no but you know here they're really they really are trying so Tevagen of all these adventures you've had from the Amazon to going to East Africa, was there one that really catalyzed you to really take this as a career? I think that it was definitely a combination of these experiences. And what I really wanted to capture is the spirit of what it is to kind of appreciate nature, what, what it is to be present in nature mm. and to have these deep connections. Because at the end of the day, I think as a human species, um, there is something very special with deep human connections. And I feel like um, that type of relationship isn't maybe the co most commonplace in uh, our day to day. And I would say the person that I hang out with on an expedition day in and day out, I know exactly what their habits are, how they smell, <laughs> <laughs> their, their daily routines, and the types of connections you get from an experience like that is just um, otherworldly. And a lot of these communities, uh, they do this on a very regular basis from the moment they're born. 
And mm. it's that deep human connections that I think make a lot of them happy and fulfilled. I think that's so right. Like Matt and I have actually only met once in person on an expedition training course. He was the guy that was teaching me. And I would like to say at least that I feel like he's a lifelong friend. I don't know if he agrees. <laughs> I'm still here. Yeah, I'm still doing the podcast. <laughs> yeah. aren't I? But, you know, that's so right. And then, but what I don't get, and, you know, you're, you're going to have to educate us all on this, is you're doing these amazing adventures. And then suddenly it all changes and you decide to go to the military and study medicine. Where's that coming? That's like a big change. Yeah, so you, you go from kind of connections, learning to interact with people, conservation, and then you're just blowing stuff up and shooting yeah. everything. <laughs> but um, yeah, so a lot of my adventures just was, was that I saw something that I wanted to do and I would hike that, not knowing what altitude sickness is, not knowing what uh, proper materials I was supposed to be bringing, like the very basics of survival and just like planning anything. So I would be in situations where I'd experience altitude for the first time, pass out, fall down in a ravine, be lost for like several hours. And uh, I noticed like more than a handful of times that like, hey, that was really not safe, mm. you know? So at that point, I really wanted to get proper training and also uh, proper education. And um, as I was going down that path, I was like, all right, that, that's all great, but I can't afford anything <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so like these uh, a lot of these courses um they're, they're, they are pricey and uh, you have to fly distances to get this uh, type of training and um at the time i was like okay do i go to this guy do i go to this person mm. is this school legitimate like i saw this guy on tv once like it, it, it like does he know what it, he's talking about and i ended up um in addition to wanting this outdoor training to get an university education as well and I think the best of both worlds was joining the military uh, at the time and it was my volleyball captain that was like hey you need money you need training like come join my unit so that's, that's <laughs> what I ended up doing and it was honestly one of the, the best choices that I made as a young adult because um, if you take to account the teamwork that you learn the resilience that you learn I think if you null it kind of numb it down all to one thing that that I could use across all the boards is just handling failure and handling like uh, shortcomings, handling plans that don't go according to plan, right? Mm. Because in the military, you, you plan for one thing, but the moment you hit the ground, the plans change. You're going out there, the officer changes the plan. You're, he has the wrong map or you have the <laughs> wrong map. The ammo is not there. And uh, the troops are scattered and uh, things are, are always in chaos. And uh, it comes to the point where it's almost laughable. And it's laughable in a sense where um, it's it's not only like you're laughing about it, you have like hundreds of hundreds of soldiers laughing about it. And there's just a sense of that that is just, um, it, it, it's something that I miss deeply in, in the civilian world. It's that hold of morale, isn't really it? Get it out here. When it goes yeah. wrong, it's holding the morale. I mean, I did it the other way. To be honest, I started in the military when I was about 15 um, and I had a, a like a young boy soldier career into into my adult years. I actually spent quite a bit of time in Canada. I met my first wife in Canada um, at Batas there in Suffield in Alberta. Um, so I, I've actually worked with with quite a few Canadian soldiers. What what branch of the military were you in? I was in the infantry, so it would be uh, the equivalent to the American Army type of deal. Yeah, I, I guess it's so, um 
is there any particular reason why you joined that particular branch? So it was, it was the easiest to, to get into. It was the yeah. I mean, I, I must admit, 100% access. <laughs> <laughs> they take a lot of different people, and um, I needed a solution very quickly, and that was the uh, the unit that my volleyball captain was in, and I thought I had an in. And yep, he got his recruiting bonus, and I was in. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the that best thing. That was the MOS he wanted. That that yeah. is it. Yeah, that's it. I mean, the best thing. I mean, you've already touched on it, but the, you know, the best thing for me with the military was the opportunity. Um, it came with so many rich opportunities to develop myself and to get qualifications in the most random things physically possible. I mean, can you? I mean, without all of it but you know a bit of a rundown of the kind of highlights of that military career and maybe the, the lessons you took from those that you've been able to take with you mm -hmm. further absolutely so um in the canadian military i'm not sure what it's like in your guys's military but we train in a bunch of different weapon systems so that's just like fun as like a young <laughs> person knowing all different weapon systems learning all different types of explosive mechanisms shooting rocket launchers on the weekend um, and then close quarter combat was a big thing uh, when I when I first joined it. We there was a transition between kind of force type of warfare to a lot of close quarter combat. So uh, there was a lot of training there. And where I found myself really gravitating towards was uh, again the opportunities to work with indigenous people. So in uh, northern Quebec we have the the Cree Nation. And uh, the rangers out there were the people that taught us uh, our survival skills, our emergency shelters up there, our like emergency hunting and trapping, and uh, living and operating in very cold, cold climates. Um, so I loved that type of training. It wasn't a hundred percent like a warfare type of situation. You know, I didn't necessarily join the army to shoot people and to kill people. Uh, so to have that as like, hey, we're learning how to survive, and I'm training people how to survive in a very austere environment. I was 100% on board with that. So that's where I gravitated towards and I ended up um, investing a lot of time in that. So obviously, can I just get this right? At the same time you were doing all of this, because that sounds like a pretty full packed agenda, you were also studying? Yeah, it was miserable. <laughs> so I, I was talking to, to Luke about this. Uh, the kind of part-time title is really full-time hours. So working uh, 40 to 60 hours a week. Uh, doing the training, doing the weekend excursion training and uh, being in there, I would have laminated notes inside of my helmet. So uh, when I was on range or like on patrol, like resting or trying to sleep, I would pull out my flashcards like in my, my, my tack vest or under my helmet and review a few things and tr hope and pray that some of that information stayed in there while I was uh, doing these uh, training exercises. And uh, yeah, I did that for three years. It's uh, three years in, um, in Quebec. Uh, because the undergraduate degrees is one year is less but I did that for three years and then worked pretty much full-time hours throughout that and then towards the end of it um, I took two years off to do that full-time so I was working close to 100 120 hours a week training wow. people and stuff yeah that's some some serious dedication um, absolutely and what did you specialize in within medicine Within medicine, I went broad at first, so I did my residency in family medicine with a focus on um, emergency medicine. Then I had additional training in uh, wilderness medicine, and um, what, in my first few years of practice, 
I did a little bit of anesthesia for low risk surgeries. I did some um, surgical assisting in orthopedics and general surgery. And then currently I practice mostly emergency medicine. So I'm up here in Maine in the US right now, just uh, practicing at ER. Fantastic. I mean, I'm just reading the notes here. And uh, the next question is, and you go from that to alone, but of course you did. I mean, you've pretty much given yourself every single piece of pre-training you needed to go on alone. Um, tell me about that transition. Tell me about how that came about. So that is the premise, you know, that's something that I, I wanted to prove to myself at first, you know, because uh, theoretically, like, yeah, sure, you have uh, someone who knows all the medical things, you have a, the, a higher degree of medical training than a lot of the people checking in on you on a show like that on a challenge like that. And at the same time, you have kind of the hard headedness of being in the army that you probably won't quit if you had a choice to. Um, and you have also uh, a lot of experience with kind of indigenous long-term living skills, which I think was a lot of the keys to making the mindset that's required for an expedition like that. Um, so in theory, yes, absolutely. A, a perfect storm of experiences, but in practicality, I think a lot of the things that really enabled me to push hard, um, I was inventing along the way. So a lot of the shelters that I made out there were shelters that I kind of modeled off of a few things, but made it my own based on uh, resources I had out there. And one thing that was um, an excellent exercise for me out there was the development of a mindset because it is so hard out there to push when you don't know why you're pushing, right? Like, mm. is it for the half million dollars? Is it to prove something to yourself? Is your ego worth that? You know, there's all these questions in your head. And um, when you're suffering on a very moment to moment basis, um, you start to question, is that suffering like worth, worth it? You know, like, mm. why are you doing it? So the process of actively convincing yourself that it is worth it and to really figure out a mission that would push you beyond what you think you're capable of is something that I found like while I was out there because I've never been able or I've never had the opportunity to push myself so close to uh, very extreme physical harm. Yeah, you really are redlining it on this show. Like I was reading up on you know the reasons why people you know sort of fell out in your season. And you know, there's everything from, uh, I'm just reading it off now, heart palpitations and exhaustion. Uh, exhaustion. You can tell that I'm slightly exhausted now because I'm still recovering from <laughs> an illness. Uh, like, losing way too much weight, parasitic infections, actual trauma itself, stomach inflammation, starvation, you know, that little thing. Yeah. Um, so there's like, there's a whole host of things that people sort of, they will put themselves to the absolute limit. And then, I guess at one point, like, is it only on yourself to pull out, or like, do they, like, do you send updates every so often, and then they can actually tell you to pull out as well? They have an authority to pull you out if they deem it is incredibly unsafe, but they have an opportunity to let you go as long as you're you're willing to. So I think the the line is thin sometimes, mm. where it's like, okay, if you want to go let's check in tomorrow. 
But um, yeah, like tomorrow comes and then let's check in tomorrow. Let's check. But in I'm tomorrow. guessing like if you wanted to, like, because you're filming yourself, like, yeah. can you just explain to us a bit the premise of the show? Because there's not like a, it's not like on Bear Grylls, the island where you've got, you know, there's producers there and there's camera operators and there are people as safety. Like, mm-hmm. you could lie to somebody and say, <laughs> I'm fine. I've only, I've lost a leg, but, you know, I'm fine. Yeah. So they do check up on you um, in certain intervals, but at the end of the day, if, like, you're lying to them, saying, like, oh, like, you feel full of energy, you're getting all this food, then that might, that definitely might judge, uh, that might change their judgment. So if they're saying, like, oh, on paper, this person should have, like, three kilos of fat and all this other resources and they they're fine um and there are ways to um to temporarily change your vital signs too which uh <laughs> some of us were doing out there you know because um when you're dehydrated and you're 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 a mess like you your heart rate goes pretty quick so uh, a lot of us a lot of the smart ones were giving ourselves like fluid boluses of like two liters at least before our check and then like all our vitals were were fine like our blood pressure was great our heart rate was normal we we're like yeah we're good to go you know and then like the moment they're gone and if we're, you're not taking care of yourself like that can that can go wonky you know like um there's i i think every single season that i could remember there's people that um, get so dehydrated or have such electrolyte abnormalities that they're passing out or very close to passing out and then mm. injuring themselves. So, um, yeah, the, the medical component is super important. And it's one of the reasons why I brought like a medical ration. It wasn't uh, an emergency ration for foods per se, but it was very specific um, to rehydration and to keep myself pushing for as long as possible. Because at the end of the day, if you're not able to function enough to maintain your survival priorities, then it, it, it all goes downhill and sometimes it goes downhill pretty fast. So, and you know, just to talk, we're going to talk about, uh, cause I know Matt and I, I were talking beforehand you know, about kit. And one of the things we do to end off the show is talk about what three pieces of kit that you want to, to take with you on any adventure. You got to choose 10 mm-hmm. but before that. So you get told, roughly where in canada it's going to be so for this one it was in labrador if i'm not uh if i'm not wrong and that's not the dog that's a place yeah uh, on, on the northeast coast of canada so how do you before you go before you decide what you're going to take what was your sort of process to prepare for going on to that mm-hmm. so from a kit standpoint i i would say that there's um several key elements that you need to bring you know, there should be an element that allows you to cut something very efficiently. You can do things with a, a rock, but that's just going to be a bunch of energy to, to do that. Um, cordage is sometimes useful. Uh, some way to purify your water, um, some kind of container. Um, in addition to that, like shelter and abilities to maintain a, a normal temperature is super important, whether that's too hot or too cold. And um, there's all these different elements. So when you take that all into account, you have to say, okay, what tools am I familiar with and what tools kind of warrant that, that to be like my one out of 10 items mm. in that particular environment. So like for me, I, the, the tool that I'm most comfortable with something that I probably wouldn't leave anywhere, uh, without in the boreal forest in Canada is an ax. You know, you, you can do a lot with a saw. Um, 
but for me, I would be a lot more comfortable using an axe only versus a saw only. And are we Especially. talking big axe or are we talking like hatchet style, you know, like handheld mm-hmm. throwing? So um, somewhere in between. So I'm not the tallest guy. I'm like 5'7". And um, like a full two hand axe for me is about 20 inches, about 2.3 pounds. That's my carpenter's axe that I brought. And it was able to do everything that I needed to out there. Um, I wouldn't really necessarily go smaller unless you had um, other tools with you. Some people like going full on small knife, axe, and then saw. Uh, mm. for, for me, I just couldn't uh, justify that because I'm a skinny person with like a fast metabolism. I needed a bunch of different hunting and food gathering implements. So I had um, fishing line and hooks. I had uh, my bow and arrow. I had trap line. I had spare cordage to make other uh, traps and um, shelter stuff. That's, it's incredible to think, like, because you are, um, I've never seen this show, but I've seen, like, sort of other iterations, and, you know, we talked about the fact that this is such a, an awesome idea to really put yourself versus nature, but, you know, and Matt does, you know, very similar things in the Arctic, you know, you're trying to think about your priorities. Now, for Matt, am I right in thinking, Matt, that you'd want it to be, you know, shelter comes first for you in the Arctic, I'm guessing over anything else? In the sort yeah, of shelter, I think, I, I think I'd focus on food fire. Yeah, I think so. I think I'd definitely focus on. I mean, I agree. An axe for me. Um, I mean, I'm a, a big fan of kind of the small forest axe size, very similar to that that you're talking about. I think um, I, I can do most things with an axe of that size, from fine work like you would with a blade to, um, to you know to larger chopping and shelter building, those kind of things, trap making. I think that would be um, the perfect choice, but absolutely. I mean, you've got to get yourself out of the elements in the Arctic. That is the kind of most vital thing to consider first is mm. get yourself, you know, somewhere where you're away from the wind and the cold, potentially able to warm it up. Uh, certainly makes life much easier. And then comes the kind of water and food situation. Um, and that acts certainly, it ticks two of those boxes, right? You can use it for the shelter and, and for the, the, the food. Um, I, I think it, it must be a really hard one. I'm going to have to sit down after this podcast and try and find 10 items I would yeah. I would take with me. I don't think I've ever been been in that situation. I, th- I would absolutely blessed. enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've never been that blessed. Yeah, normally it's... I mean, we talk a lot in the jungle about surviving off of your parang and your belt kit. And that's... I guess you'd probably mm. say there was maybe yep. six or seven items in, in that kit set. Um, but, you know, the Arctic brings other issues, doesn't it? It certainly brings an environmental issue. Um that we need to be very considerate of. So, Timogen, tell us, so you've got your axe, and I can obviously tell that the axe is a favourite. Don't get between Timogen and his axe. But Mm. what were the other nine items that you decided to take with you? And and just tell us a bit about the environment. I was going to change my question. What is Labrador like? Because as far as I'm aware, it's not snow-covered tundra. It's a bit different, actually, even though it's so high. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Labrador... Think of a boreal forest that gets Arctic winds, but also coastal kind of rainfall as well. Sounds terrible. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the difficulty with a place like Labrador is the shifts and the gradients in temperature. So I love the cold. Like I'd be happy in cold and dry minus 60 Celsius uh, with the kit that I'm familiar with in the military and the other stuff that I bring. But if it goes from like minus 20 down to like below just above freezing 
in a span of a few days and if you you kind of mix in a lot of rain and torrential downpour that lasts weeks on end like your 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 animals are doing the same thing at, at that you are the fish are doing the same thing they're not going to be as active so can you hold out for like three weeks as you are wet as you are not getting food um, as you have a laundry list of things to do uh, when the environment's kind of beating you down and how capable are you at uh, identifying patterns and are you going to put yourself um, through the elements to identify those patterns you know, so there, there's a lot of things that you're discovering on the ground because unless you're from Labrador in this like very woody, wet, very uneven ground, um, like on the side of a, of a mountain, you don't really know what you're hunting. You don't know what's out there. Yeah. Um, so unless you're out there getting kind of pummeled by the rain and then the, the snow, you, you just don't have enough information. And uh, that's kind of like the balance people have to play on a show like this because it's all about calorie conservation. It's all about strategy. And it's also about staying in a, in a nice light when you're thinking about yourself and your situation. Because mm. when you're there, you are literally up against some titans of survival, like the survival world. You have people with 15 years plus military experience, way more than my measly six years, you know? People that have been hunting for like 20 years. Fishermen who like are, they live, breathe, and know fish. They know exactly what lures to, to throw. They And they're literally in orientation pulling out like 20 inch <laughs> fish. And I'm there trying like, how do I tie like this thing? And like, well, what lure am I supposed to use? So it's, it's very intimidating to, to be in a position where you're fighting against those people. But at the end of the day, uh, I think it, it just took me like a few days to be like, okay, it really isn't about them because you, you got to focus on what you can control and what's directly in front of you. And um, you'll be surprised at how your attention shifts when you're just focusing on like one objective a day or one thing that would drastically change uh, your life out there. And um, it was almost a religious experience out there for me because I was actively asking for help because of how desperate I was out there. And it was very interesting to see how that shifted my attention. So if it was food related, shelter related, resource related, it was almost like someone was listening and I would find that thing, whether it be the same day or the next day. Fantastic. I mean, if we break it down then into those kind of elements, we talked of kind of shelter, water and food. Um, what was, what was your plans for acquiring food? What, what items did you take with you that, you know, were specific to purely the acquisition of food? Yeah, so for purely the acquisition of food, I had my bow and arrow, and I wasn't a hunter, but I did uh, target shooting for uh, like seven years, so I was comfortable with a grouping, but a moving grouping or a moving target <laughs> was completely different, but still different. wanted it because uh, our only big game that we could take out there, and I knew that if I could take that, that would mean I could potentially win the season, was black bear so you can only take that with with a bow and arrow i don't think legally we could have took it with a, a big ass trap so i think that was the only option for that i also took um snare wire different types of gauges and different types of material i had stainless steel and then also uh brass so you could make that for your your small game but also make lures as well for your fish um, and I actually made um, a bunch of bird traps while I was out there as well with uh, my snare wire. And then the third thing uh, for 
food kind of gathering was cordage. So I had a 550 paracord that I repurposed a lot of the inner strands for, for different types of traps and nets. Um, and then the fourth thing wasn't necessarily food procurement directly. It was my emergency rations, which was a combination of uh, a salt mixture, a sugar mixture, and a rice mixture, which you can use individually for uh, treatments of dysentery, which is uh, historically one of the more common medical illnesses out there. People just have um, get a little lazy with hand hygiene and then cooking uh, their their meats properly, and then they they leave because they have a, a limited course of diarrhea and um, and vomiting. And I knew with those rations, I could be out there sick as a dog for two weeks and then go back as um, as as new on um, on day one. Um, as someone who's never hunted before, the first few days was pretty rough. I think on total, I spent about 13 days without animal protein. Got a, a few fish in the first few days, then it got colder, the water levels dropped. And uh, the first few days, like I was getting strikes every single time I was throwing uh, lures into the, um, the water. And then after that, nothing, not even a bite. So I decided after that, I'd um, try my hand at some bow hunting. And initially I was looking for squirrels because that's all I heard. And then I heard the grouse and that kind of was a game changer for me. So it's kind of like chickens of the woods. And the first time I saw a grouse and tried to pursue it, I felt like it was like Lord of the Rings. Because again, like <laughs> moving targets different than a stationary target. I was like shooting so many arrows at them and I was actively running after it and then picking up arrows like, Knocking it out of trees and firing it back at it. And uh, even though I was hitting it, the adrenaline of that bird, like uh, like some of these arrows were going through and through and it was still going. So I kept on chasing it through the woods. And after that, oh I was God. like... Did you get it on video? I did get it on video. That's great. I'm not sure if they aired everything because like it was pretty gruesome, you know, like just like seven different arrows through this bird. And then at the end of it, I was like like beating it in the head with, with like a piece of uh, a stick that I just like ripped off of a tree. So the first one was incredibly gruesome and I felt horrible for it. But at the same time, it uh, completely changed the game because uh, then it was like, okay, now this is possible. Like this is on the menu. And uh, after that, um, then I started to pattern my animals. So I, I knew exactly when I should be um, hunting grouse because they have almost, uh, at least in the area that I was at, almost a three-day cycle that they would come to this uh, very specific stream near my shelter for grit so that they could process the, the food that they were eating. Yeah. So instead of actively hunting, I patterned the animals enough so that I could just walk out of my shelter and be like, okay, this is like three days after. I know they're coming down this morning. Everything's ready. And I would get like two in a day, you know, two or three in a day just walking outside of my shelter. A lot more calm uh, yeah. <laughs> rather than the... I'm trying to imagine, like, how do you... You know, I, I mentioned the fact that you're filming it yourself. Is it GoPros on your head? Is that the sort of way that it's normally going? How does it work? All of the above. So, like, you're trying to set up your wide shot, and then, like, you're kicking things away, and it, it falls down, and you're trying to, like, grab it up again and, like, hopefully put it against a tree to make it stay, and then you got some GoPros going, and then you're, you're forgetting, like, is the audio on or not? Like, is, is the GoPro on? So you're, like, clicking things as you're running through the forest. And um, it, it comes to the point where, where you get hungry enough that you just take the shot if you can take the shot and hopefully it's on camera. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, like, do you, do you say, like, as you're going up, you're like, and please be in focus. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, 
Otherwise, you're having to go back out again. That's you know, that's the that's the choice. You can't say, "Oh, I suddenly found food." You gotta. It's not on camera. It doesn't count. So you've yeah. got. So I just want to get this right so out of ten. So first items: the axe. You got your emergency ration. You got your fishing line and hooks, which I'm guessing counts as, as one item. Yeah. Uh, a, a bunch of different snare wires, bow and arrow, which I'm guessing again that counts as one item. Mm-hmm. Uh, not an unlimited amount of arrows that I'm getting in your quiver. No, nope, you get, uh, I think, seven, if I remember. So that's that's seven, pretty seven, fair, actually. Yeah, seven or nine. And um, you can choose what kind of tips you have. So um, okay. I had, like, I think four or five blunt heads and a few um, broadheads. Amazing. I, I just and, had, like, three broadheads. And then you go get some paracord as well. I love paracord. So that's six. You got four items left. So sleeping uh, bag, I think, was something that I would not go without. Like you, yeah, you can fair. improvise a few different things, but like it, you have no idea what the environment's like. So having that was uh, a big deal for me. So I had a minus forty down with a Gore-Tex kind of uh, integrated cover on it. Ooh, yeah, fancy. it was nice. It was nice. Um, and after that, I had my pot um, to boil water and uh, to cook things in. And I, I would say I would boil 90% of everything that I ate out there just because um, it allowed me to eat a lot of bone. So it would okay. be soft enough for, for me to eat bone. So I was eating like spinal cords. I was eating like everything, everything um, I could out there. And besides the the pot, I, for my cutting implements, I had that uh, multi-tool. Right. And, then, and was this and the, the classic Leatherman? So this was a Leatherman Surge. Highly recommend. Um, and... The thing that I really appreciated from this was it had a removable um, diamond and metal file to it. So I used it to to hone my knives on the Leatherman itself and also my axe too. So everything, every time I used it, like it, it was always razor sharp. Um, so that really helped me do what I needed to do, but also to uh, prevent injuries as well. And one of the things that I really love doing with my Leatherman, and I, this was with the help with um, my buddy from Forged and Fire, Josh Weston, is we did some custom modifications on the multi-tool. And um, I knew that if I got any skin infections or if I needed to cut something out, whether it was like a small like uh, um, twig or something like that that got in, impaled or embedded in, in, in myself, that I would need two types of blades. One would be to drain type of abscesses with so um mm. the equivalent to a, an 11 surgical blade and then something that would be a little more slicey um for any kind of it targeted incisions that i needed to, to make so that uh, was a 15 blade that i put in there then I, honestly that sounds like something i want to do to my leatherman that that <laughs> it sounds too cool not to have it and like when you are obviously for those of us that are medical you know we everything's very sterilized and it's all in a wrapping so it's one time use like mm -hmm. when you did have to use it in in the heat of the moment were you did you heat it up over a flame to keep it to get it clean and, and make it sterile how did you do mm -hmm. that so my preference especially for uh tools that are completely metal is you just boil bring it up to the level of a boil in in water because um you're already boiling water for whatever you're doing and the majority of everything that you need to kill out there, uh, virus being the most robust to kill, dies at 97 degrees Celsius. So if you're sterilizing that, you just need to bring that instrument in that water to 100 degrees Celsius, which is boiling point, and then you're mm. at, at sea level, um, and then you're good to go to use that implement. 
So um, I use it a lot for just minor wounds and uh, also shaving off um, the fissures in your nails. So what happens when you handle warm things and then cold things is your fingers tend to swell up and your nails can uh, separate from your, your nail bed. And um, yeah, and the, the skin on the tip of your fingers tend to fissure out. And if those fissures are wide, they just get wider and wider and wider. So you need to pare them down. So you need a very sharp blade uh, to do that. No, I actually um, had that so yeah. coming down off Mont Blanc this summer. I lost, I, well, I've now lost both my big toenails. I'd only lost one. Mm. Uh, and then the other one decided to fall off this week. So lucky me. Um, but yeah, so you've got all of this. And then there's one more item. And you haven't said anything to do with fire. So I'm guessing it's like a fire making device. Yep. I did have a ferrocinium rod. Um, like I still have it to this day. I probably will still have it till the day I die because like it, it's it's like an infinite amount of fires if you know how to make a tinder bundle correctly. Mm. Um, so like for me, it was a few strikes and then like you have you have a fire there. And if you're banking your coals and um, being smart with how you're setting up your fireplace, like you really don't need a whole lot to maintain that. But it it is a security for again. It only takes a few hours with not having a normal body temperature to be delirious enough to seriously injure yourself. And then the last thing that I had was my emergency ration was that uh, combination of uh, different things for electrolytes and nutrition. So what challenges did you, I mean, obviously you've mentioned you'd never been there before. So the, the environment was new to you. You've touched on the black bear population, which is somewhat worrying. Um, you know, what challenges were there for you? So the first big challenge was figuring out what I was going to do for food after 13 days of not eating any animal protein. Because at the end of the day, like you, you want to be successful out there. And yes, you can starve yourself out on roots and berries for a number of days. Like we've seen people do it before in prior seasons, but it's, it doesn't really exemplify or it wasn't the experience that I wanted to do. So I wanted to be super successful with, with food gathering. Um, so the biggest challenge for me was uh, realizing that after only four days that my fishing idea was not going to work, you know, <laughs> oh, no. you know, so it, 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 it's, um, it's, it's very daunting to be like, okay, the only way that I'm going to procure food and potentially win this thing or to experience this thing is to do something that I've never done before, you know, so that's a, a huge mental hurdle. And um, something that was so amazing to, uh, to accomplish out there. And after two weeks, then it was a, a nice lax. And I think the only big challenge after that was uh, at day 40, when, you, when I had a very comfortable shelter, when I was getting food, um, I had reserves, and I was finding um, difficulty staying because I didn't really have a reason to. You know, so it, it becomes, uh, what is your reason to stay? And for me, it became all about um, how I could impact people with a story, how I could impact lives, and specifically my mom's uh, life, by telling a story. And that became more important than winning the, the half million dollars. That became more important than um, how uncomfortable I felt or the failures or the successes that I had out there. So really redefining your mission on a very regular basis so you don't get into a trap saying like why am I doing this um, was instrumental to me pushing beyond what I thought I was physically capable of but again in situations like that you always have like another 10% in you fantastic that that is it, it's it's kind of a humbling story really that that 
as you talk about that kind of mental change, that mental journey that you're on whilst you're there, you know, originally, you, like you said, you're having great success with the fishing. It all fell off after day four, a huge low point, naturally, 13 days without any animal produce, really starting to struggle. And then ultimately, day 40, everything's actually going really well. You know, we've got the shelter built, we've got supplies, we've got a kind of a back storage of food. And then we're having to mentally reevaluate and give us a reason to, to continue to stay. And I think that that mental journey is one everybody goes through on uh, on any type of prolonged trip. That journey, that kind of really finding a lot about yourself, um, which is ultimately the reason I think most of us travel. You didn't win. Mm. You came in third place. What was the reason for you to to kind of drop out when you did? Yeah, so the reason why I ended up leaving was again, it tied back to the reason why I pushed from day 40 onwards, right? I was trying to reignite a flame inside my mom, or at least try to, because at, up until that point, she had become a person that I did not recognize from the person who raised me, right? Mm -hmm. um, she grew up, she, she raised me while she was one of the strongest, most like vibrant per people that I've ever met and um, fierce to every definition of the word. And it took a series of very traumatic life events uh, in her health, in her relationships, in her finances to really um, make her very vulnerable and to make her into a different person. So for me, to exemplify what she means to me and to exemplify everything that she has taught me up to that point was more important than anything else. And to the storyline, I felt like if I was pulled from it, that wouldn't necessarily convey strength. That wouldn't necessarily convey the story that I wanted to. So for me to be able to walk out with my 60 pounds of gear um, while I still could, I think was gave me the ability to tell the story that I needed to to potentially change your life and to potentially change some some other people's lives who are struggling with similar things so uh that's why i left and uh to this day i i don't regret it in one bit because if i won the half a million dollars but had to be evacuated crippled and um having to put a parent through that type of visual i i don't think would have been good for her and uh, it wouldn't have been it definitely would have been good for me. I don't think uh, I would have been able to practice as a physician uh, shortly after an experience like that. That's a pretty heartwarming story. I like that. Yeah, sure. So, Timogen, you know, you, we talked at the start about the different people that were on the show and the guy that won it, this, this, a guy came first place, then there was a lady, and then it was you. Now, a lot of these people, as you said, were specialists in something. They were expert hunters, or they've been fishermen for 15 years, or they've done prolonged military service. Now, you've come at it with a very varied background, what I like to call the Swiss Army knife approach. Um, I'm sure someone coined that way before I did. But you have this very varied background. Do you think that allowed you to fare better than they were able to with that sort of one, you know, that one core skill? It definitely gives you a lot of leverage for sure. You know, I would say the majority of people who pull themselves out are concerned that they're suffering some kind of emergency. Mm. Now, when you say like, hey, 
okay, even if you're suffering something, if, if I told you I could fix it, would you stay longer? I think everyone in the history of that show, if someone could fix whatever they're concerned about in that moment, that they would have stayed longer. And uh, that definitely made me feel like I, I had a lot of control over um, my experience out there. And uh, to know what that red line is and to know what those um, red flag signals are and to intervene when I'm able to intervene and then to, to leave when I don't think I could intervene. So that was uh, definitely something that I took to my benefit and also in the preparation as well because it's not only about day one, your, your drop. There, there is quite a number of preparations that you have to have prior to this, whether that is specific um, environmental training, uh, whether that is gaining a bunch of weight healthy and uh, also a lot of different strength conditioning. So I had the benefits of um, knowing a little bit backgrounds of the physiology and the, the science behind preparing for a situation like that. And at the same time, I think one of the, the biggest things um, is perspective. You know, at the end of the day, even if this is an incredibly hard situation, unless you die out there, you're, you're going back home and you can eat regularly. You're in a society that may have healthcare or at least some kind of version of healthcare. Um, and that's not always the case for other people. That's not the case for some of my friends who live in East Africa right now. Yeah. Um, you know, so for, for me, uh, that perspective of this is a survival challenge, but I think challenge is the, the, the key word where some people have a survival of reality you know, mm -hmm. so um, that I think that perspective and actually seeing these people suffer was something that uh, enabled me to say, like, OK, this is horrendous right now, but it's not that bad. You know, so I think perspective pl uh, played a key role there. So I, I don't think it's just uh, a varied skill set. I think it's also a varied experience and uh, relations that I've had that uh, enabled me to push harder than I think my training allowed me to. And it's, it's so interesting what you said there, and it sort of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, you know, with these tribes which work, you know, with the land, they work with nature. And now that you've done this, it, it, that was filmed in 2021, it got released in 2022. Since then, you, you've got married, congratulations. Thank you. Um, but where has your mindset really shifted, you know, in terms of your own personal work and and what you want to do, what was the effect of alone now? Absolutely. So the effect of experiencing something as extreme as alone, and I'm sure a lot of people on uh, prolonged expeditions feel this, or at least think about it, is what is your priorities in life? Well, what is your purpose? What is the thing that you want to leave this world with? And for me, I think I could leave the world a better place if everyone was comfortable saving a life or capable of saving a life. I think the world would be better if they had the, at least the, the skills and the competence to survive maybe 24 hours, 72 hours, longer than two weeks, maybe as long as I did on alone. I think mm. family members would be closer going through a training experience like that. And it's something that um, I want to pass on to my own kids, something that I want to pass on to my wife. And right now that, that's my main focus. Uh, passing on that knowledge and to sharing that knowledge and to be a bridge to connect people that may not think they're an outdoor person or may not think that they could save a life or may not think that they could survive and um, introduce them to people that 
thought the same thing and now they're teaching it, you know? So it's a lot about uh, sharing the knowledge and creating a community for me. And uh, that's what I'm launching in the next few few weeks, actually. Well, that's that's really much just taking the next question right out of my mouth. Tell me about this uh, <laughs> this next project. I'm loving this. It's free-flowing podcasts are exactly how they should be. Yeah, so um, my upcoming project is a longitudinal educational experience. So instead of going on a weekend and me teaching you these survival skills and you may be getting rusty a week down the line, two weeks down the line if you're not practicing it, um, I'm really trying to emphasize a longitudinal experience um, that allows you to get the fundamentals, to repeat the fundamentals, and to also um, learn at, in a community what all the nuances are. Because if we are just me and you, I'm getting a perspective from my perspective, you're getting a perspective from your perspective. But when you increase that into maybe tens, maybe hundreds of people uh, doing similar things, I learn as much as my students learn from me. And to gain that amount of uh, resource from different eyeballs is just so instrumental. So what we're going to be doing is um, on a monthly basis, we're going to be learning um, a key either survival skill or a key medical, emergency medical skill and uh, reviewing different techniques together. And then uh, depending on um, where you want to be in our learning collaborative, um, you'll also be going out um, as part of your membership to these different uh, locations around North America first and then uh, eventually around the world too to experience different environments. So we'll be doing it in hot, like arid environments. We'll be doing it in like the mountains of Colorado and Idaho. Uh, the boreal forests and getting comfortable surviving and uh, thriving and saving lives in all these different contexts and you know how does this sort of come into you know we, we talked a little bit about this i grew up in the states for a little bit how does you know there's obviously a massive prepper culture mm -hmm. in the united states and i'm guessing in canada too because you know it's that sort of vibe in the uk we have it but it's it's nowhere near the size and i'm sure in norway is i always joke about matt where he is in kirk and people just walk around with knives open carry style <laughs> very different uh it's not just matt but how does it work when you're trying to get people to sort of take on this it is it is training it is sort of not professionalizing but really standardizing what it is that people actually learn What's that receptiveness when it comes to going into a culture where people have often done their own thing and there is a lot of misinformation out there about mm -hmm. especially medical practices? Absolutely. So you talked about standardization and I definitely think that there is a role to standardize to a certain extent, but you don't want it to limit kind of what it is to be a survivalist, right? Mm. And to practice improvised medicine. The foundations allow you to know why a treatment works and why a certain device works. Um, but when you uh, take all that away and just say, like, hey, here's the algorithm and just do the algorithm, as soon as you don't have that resource or as soon as the situation is just a little bit different, then there's a, a lot of hesitation. So I'm all for um, taking gold standards, but also going very deep into the information to know why that became a gold standard. And uh, one of the things that I really like about a long, longitudinal-based learning is that every time that there's an update, our, our students are getting it 
the moment that I'm getting it, which is when the whatever medical association is releasing it. So quarterly, we go through um, all the medical boards and their recommendations to make sure that uh, students are receiving the most up-to-date information and why they're receiving these up-to-date information, why there was a change. Um, and it can be as simple as, okay, now we treat a collapsed lung a little bit different than um, taping three sides. You know, like that, that was a recent update uh, this year. You know, so, um, and to figure out like why we're not doing things so that people don't get hurt or you're not causing injury. And that's the, the big issue with a lot of survival schools teaching medical skills is because a lot of them are outdated and you're actually causing more harm and not doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing. Namely, like one of the big things is stopping a bleed. So if you, if you mess up with that and you can either cause them harm, so an amputation, or number two, you don't stop the bleed and they die in front of you. And that's, that's a horrible thing to experience. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things, and it's a whole separate topic about, you know, where do you draw the line between these things? Uh, and a lot of what you do in prolonged field care, it's, it's a whole different ball game. You know, uh, tourniquets is a great thing as well. You're looking at uh, metabolic acidosis and all that sort of stuff, which, you know, again, that's very medical. We don't need to talk about it, but it's different. You know, it's different if you're doing it in a hospital to if you're doing it on an ambulance, to if you're doing it in the wildland sort of setting, to if you're doing it in remote ways. And it is fascinating because there is such a knowledge base that is yet to really be fermented. But, you know, we again, we're going to have to get you back. <laughs> that is always the case, isn't it? We run out of time. It, basically think about your your gold standard algorithms and then each kind of step is basically a master class in what people what my students are going through so that they know for a fact like this is why this works mm. you know i mean i guess we're gonna have to draw a line under this we're definitely gonna have to come back aren't we um i'm gonna you've listed 10 items that you specifically chose to take with you uh on an exploration we have a bit of a theme on the show and we're doing our expedition essentials. Now, these are three items that are not what I would class as our kind of classic equipment set. So it's not your sleeping bags. It's not your tools. It's three things that you take with you. And really, I guess they're there to aid in that mental sanity. Um, three things that make the wilderness bearable. Three things that are going to get you through the trip. Let me have them. Okay, and what climate? Any climate, that's the Any problem. Climate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't make it easy. So, three things that I always carry with me, no matter what no matter what climate I'm going in, is typically two types of tape. I have like my gorilla or marine grade tape Ooh. that I use for a bunch of different things, whether that's medical, non-medical, or even fire starting because of the petroleum base in it. And I also have an athletic tape which is, think about hockey tape, but wider and uh, the adhesive is more strong. So I use that also for both medical and uh, for survival type of gear. Um, but very specifically, because I have injuries on my right knee and my right ankle, and um, I can make an ankle wrap that lasts me more than 10 days uh, with just a, a little bit of that tape. And it's as good, if not better, than some of the commercial grade stuff that you would buy over the counter. Um, so those are like two things that I definitely bring every time. And then um, I like Vaseline. <laughs> so I use it uh, for a bunch of different things. And uh, one thing that I wish I did have on a loan 
um, was chapstick. You know, it's super Ooh. simple, but for some reason, in uh, a lot of survival situations, your your lips get like crazy, crazy dry, and it might be dehydration, it might be um, exposure to the cold and wind. But even in Arctic type of stuff, like I, I always carry like my lotion and chapstick with me. Are we counting that as two? No, I think you gotta have one more. I'm gonna give you tape as one and Vaseline okay. as another. Okay. <laughs> and then the last one, the last one that I typically carry is electrolyte mix. Oh, very medical. I'm liking it. So the ORS tablets. Yeah, those are really good. I remember they used to get really good flavored sachets, but now all of the ones today are, are the tablets, and I I miss the electrolyte sachets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we made something called Jungle Juice, uh-huh. which is you just get a jerry can and you put like six of the sachets in, and whatever flavor it was was you know delicious yeah. in a way, but very good for you. And then the final thing to do on this episode is. What would be your essential one piece of advice to someone that wants to be an explorer in this day and age? If you want to be an explorer in this day and age, it can be as simple as doing one thing every other day or once a day that you're uncomfortable doing. It doesn't necessarily have to be survival. It doesn't necessarily have to be exploring. But do one thing that makes you uncomfortable and go from there and branch off. That'll build your confidence. That'll build your textile skills. And um, that will get you in the mindset that no matter what happens or no matter where you go, you'll figure it out. And I think uh, at the key of it, that's that's the spirit of survival. Man, I love that. That that's I think that's one of the best dances we've had. A massive thank you to you, Dr. Timogen Tan. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. You've agreed to come back, so I'm going to hold you to that. And we're very lucky to have you on the mini-series as well, which is either going to release the week before this episode or the week after. Uh, I haven't edited them yet, so we'll find out. But make sure you check that out and check out every other episode in the series. And if you want to follow along with his adventures, check him out on Instagram at The Survival Doctors. Timogen, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Super fun. Thanks for having me. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Medicine on the Frontier. If you couldn't tell, Matt was actually in another Arctic storm. I guess that's one of the few drawbacks to living somewhere so beautiful. But as always, we managed to get this show done, no matter where we are. As promised, next week, Dr. Timujin Tan is returning for our mini-series. Just make sure you stay tuned for that next Monday. And then the week after that, we have cave diving, skydiving, basically all-round adventurer Andy Torbett coming on the show. And that's, you know, it's going to be a great episode. And then we've only got one more mini-series after that, and a Christmas special. And then we're basically done for the year, so guys i hope you enjoy make sure to subscribe stay up to date follow us on social media as we explore medicine on the frontier